This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is really wonderful to be here with all of you. You probably, most of you have no idea who I am. Uh, but my name, again, my name is Matt Creasy. My wife Nicole is here with me. And we, uh, we're from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, we, I, so I just, uh, back in 2020, graduated from Covenant Seminary. So I know Natalia from Covenant and Margarita. And, um, and I, oh, I think Zach might have been there too. Uh, love you, Zach. So anyway, we, we love them. And we're so happy that you guys get to benefit from their, um, their presence here in your body. And um, anyway, this is just a real pleasure. That's what I'm saying. So, here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm, this, I'm just going to have to dive in, guys, because this is going to be kind of, this is, I'm going to go from like, hi, to really serious. Why does God allow horrible things to happen? There's a common objection to faith in God, particularly the God of the Bible, that goes something like this. I just can't believe in a God that would let children starve to death or that would allow things like the Holocaust to occur, or the transatlantic slave trade, or genocide, or, you know, pick your tragedy. I just can't believe in a God like that. And as Christians, it can be really hard to know, how, how do you even begin to, to address a question like that? Especially because I think if we're really honest, a lot of us have the same question. We, too, wrestle with the question of, why does God let terrible things happen? You know, especially when we see horrific things happening in our world, when tragedy, when trauma strikes at our lives, we wonder, why, God? Why would you let this happen? Well, if that's you, if you have ever wondered why, good news. God has given us an entire book of the Bible that addresses that very question, the book of Job. And so we are going to be looking at the book of Job together this morning, and we're going to be asking the question. If, if you're a person, that, by the way, that likes to take notes, I would write this question down. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Okay, that's the question of the day. That's what we're going to be looking at. So let's read from the book of, I, I believe we stand when we read God's word here. Yes, am I right? Please stand. Oh, by the way, I'm also not going to read the whole book, okay? So rest assured, we're not reading the whole book. I'm just going to be jumping around a bit. Uh, but I would encourage all of you to go and if, either read the book the, over the next couple weeks, uh, or maybe if you're not a, good at reading, do the, like, the audiobook thing, just to kind of get a, you know, a sense of the whole book. But here we go. The book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. I'm going to skip down to verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so the question that we're asking is, why does God allow pain and suffering? But before we can really begin to address the question, we have to look at how the book of Job sets up the question. Okay, so at the beginning of the book, here in chapter 1, we're introduced to the protagonist, to Job, and we're told he is a blameless and upright man, and that is not sarcastic From beginning to end, everything in the book of Job commends the man Job to us. You're meant to like him. You're meant to admire him, right? And to kind of want to be like him. God calls it, he's blameless and upright. Okay? And throughout the book, we kind of see this, him acting uprightly. Okay? So it's important to recognize he is righteous, relatively speaking. Right? That... He's not perfect, but he is, compared to everyone else around him, a righteous and godly man. Okay? So then we have this really quick scene change. Here's Job, and then boom, we're now in heaven, in God's heavenly throne room. And there the God's angelic servants are coming before him to pay homage to their king. And among the angelic beings, there is Satan. Now... This is not a sermon about Satan, but I just want to acknowledge that the topic of the devil, I'm sure, brings up a lot of questions, confusion, and just like, there's a lot we could talk about. So I'm not going to say a lot about Satan today, but I would encourage you, if you're like, if you have a lot of questions, feel free to come talk to me or one of the the church leaders. We would be happy to help answer some of your questions, okay? So for our time and our purposes this morning, here's what I want you to notice. Uh, We tend to think Satan is the devil's name, don't we? Like he's Mr. Satan. But in Hebrew, the word Satan, it means enemy or adversary. It can also mean accuser. In fact, in the New Testament, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So it's more like a title. It's, it's what he does. It's, right? it kind of def- it's, it's a title that defines kind of who he is. And what we see him doing here in our passage is accusing, don't we? He says to God, uh, yeah, Job only is, you know, he only worships you because you give him a bunch of stuff. He doesn't care about you, God. He just likes the benefits of the relationship. He'll curse you to your face if you take his stuff away. And God agrees to this test in Job's life. Now, here's the thing I want us to notice. It isn't, even though Satan is the one that makes the accusation, he's not the one who speaks first, is he? 
God is the one that actually speaks first. He says, you know, where have you come from? And then, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know if Job ever got to read his own story. Probably not. But if I was Job and I was reading the book of Job, that's the part where I would go, whoa, God, you don't need to bring me into this. You can leave me out of it. Thank you very much. But God, he doesn't ask Job. He doesn't even like shoot him an email and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to do this agreement with Satan. No, he just does it. And then, as all of you will read over the next couple of weeks, Job, he laments and complains about what's happened to him. But he doesn't blame Satan. He blames God. God has done this to me. God's hand is against me. And God never actually corrects that. He never comes back and says, hold on, Job. It wasn't me. It was Satan. God is the one that sets the parameters of the test, doesn't he? The first part of it, he says, you can take away all of his stuff, but don't touch his body. And then later on, he lets Satan attack his health, but he says, but you can't kill him. And at the end of the book, what you'll see is that God is the one that brings the test to an end. So what we're seeing is that from beginning to end, God is the one who is in total control of the circumstances of Job's life. He is what we would call sovereign. He ordains everything that happens. That's a big theological word, kids, ordains. It means that God is the one who's in control of everything that happens in all of the world, all the time throughout history. Okay? Now, kids and people who are new to the faith, I'm going to pause for a minute. We're, gonna, we're pausing the sermon. I want you to ask a really important question at this moment. In fact, some of you probably are because you look really smart. Okay? A really good question to ask is, hold on. If God's in control of everything that happens all of the time, does that mean that God is responsible for evil? Does that mean God created evil? No. And then you're going to ask, well, how is that? Great question. I'm glad you asked it. I think the best place that how this, these two things can both be true at the same time comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a really, really old document written by a lot of white guys hundreds of years ago, but it's really good articulation of what we believe and what our denomination affirms. It's like, this is what the Bible teaches, okay? And in chapter five, it talks about God's providence. That's another word for God being in control of everything. And it says that in chapter five, it says that God, he exercises his providence, right, in two ways. One, through first causes. He just creates something or he makes something to happen. He can do it that way. But he also does it through second causes, meaning that God allows people, or in this case, Satan, to make choices, to do things. And he knows what they're going to choose. He knows how, what the consequences of their choices and their actions is going to be, and he allows it to occur. So that, so again, God, second, uh, through second causes. That's how God continues to be or in control of everything, but he's not the source of evil. That makes sense? Cool. All right. Unpause. We're back, back to the sermon. Okay. So here's the thing that we're seeing. It's not just that God allows pain and suffering. He ordains it. He plans it. He's in control of it. And so, of course, we, we see that, and our immediate response is, why? 
why? Why would God do that? And that's not just a question that we would ask. That's a question for ancient people as well. But, you know, by the end of chapter 2, we're, we're kind of this, the question's been set up. Job is utterly miserable with having lost all of his stuff. His children are all dead. He's got sores and boils all over his body. And we've got 40 more chapters to go. So the assumption is, okay, the rest of the book of Job is going to answer the question, why does God ordain pain and suffering? And it does, but not in the way that you think. Okay, so if you're a note taker, scratch out the word allow and write in the word ordains. Why does God ordain pain and suffering in the world? Well, so the way the book of Job begins to address this question is through a poetic back and forth. Okay, so keep in mind, just for those of you who aren't familiar with this, the book of Job is mostly poetry. Okay, so as you read it, you'll notice that the, the language is very elevated. Okay, so this, this poetic discussion between Job and his three friends. So at the end of chapter two, Job is utterly miserable. He's, he's sick. He's lost all his stuff. His kids are all dead. And he's got these three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, very garden variety names. They come and they, they cry with him and they sit with him for seven days. But then after this period of time, Job, just out of the overflow of misery and sorrow that he's in, just says like, I wish I'd never been born. And then this sparks a reaction from his friends. And so what, what you'll see as you read through the book is that Job's friends have a lot to say, but actually they don't have a lot to say. They basically just make the same argument again and again and again and again and again, right? And, but they just do it in slightly different ways. And so I'm not going to read all of it again. We're just going to like cover just a little bit here. Uh, but we're going to, uh, let me, where's my, find my spot here. I'm just going to read to you what one of them has to say. Okay, this is from, uh, oops. Sorry, my bad. That's the wrong spot. Okay, this is from Job, uh, Job chapter 4. Here we go. Found my spot. Sorry, guys. Okay, this is Eliphaz the Temanite. <clears throat> Just uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now, uh, this is Eliphaz speaking to Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed... Those who plow in evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And at the breath of God, they perish. And at the blast of his anger, they are no more. Do you hear what he's, what he's saying? What he's saying is, you know, uh, you know, Job, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. And then he kind of goes on, and, you know, to basically the assumption is, so stop being bad do good things, and things will get, work out for you, right? What's, what's the argument there? He's basically saying that, you know, God runs the whole universe according to what we might call the law of karma, right? You guys know about the law of karma, right? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad, right? That's his argument. And again, the, his friends kind of they make this argument again and again and again. And there's a certain logic to the law of karma, isn't there? Right? I mean, generally speaking, just generally speaking, if you're 
a mean, capricious, selfish, greedy, lying, manipulative person, people don't want to associate with you. Sorry if you didn't know that already, okay? But, and that's, that lack of social capital is going to have negative impact in your life. But if you're, generally speaking, a kind, decent, honest person who treats people with dignity, people want to associate with you, and that's going to have positive impact in your life, isn't it? Right? That's just generally true. And in fact, there's another wisdom book of the Bible. Job is in the wisdom uh, category of the Bible. There's another book, the book of Proverbs, and it's filled with examples of this. Of like, if you work hard, generally, you're gonna, things are going to go well for you. If, you know, if you're honest, if you're Right? And that's, that's true. That's true. But Job's friends are making the assumption that, okay, this is always true. The, the law of karma is always true. There's no exceptions to the rule. But Job's argument is, uh, that's not right. You know, because I, there are exceptions to the law of karma, and I'm case in point. Now, here's the thing we need to recognize, too, in this argument. There's a certain assumption on both, on both ends that's, that's op, that they're, everybody's assuming here. And the big one is this, that God is just. Okay? And that checks out biblically. God himself asserts that he is just. And throughout the Bible, that's just an assumption that God is perfectly just in all that he does. That God is, because he is the creator of everything... He is not just, he just not just what we, you know, he's not just the one who created what we would consider morality or justice or goodness, but he is the measure of those things, okay? And both Job's friends and Job are holding to that assumption. But Job's friends kind of make that logical step to go, okay, well, if God is just, perfectly just, then he has to run this, the, you, the whole universe according to this very strict rule of justice, right? Just kind of one-to-one -one correlation, but here's the thing. I think if we're, I mean, you don't have to be that smart. You don't have to be that observant to recognize that just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, just look around the world. There's plenty of exceptions to the rule of karma. You kind of have to choose, you kind of have to choose to say, ignore the reality that's in front of us every day, all the time to kind of hold to the, this idea that the world is run according to the law of karma, don't you? I'll give you a personal example. So some good friends of ours uh, that we've known them for a long time, they've faithfully served their church home where they are for years. They're not perfect people, but they're really decent people. And we love them greatly. They've loved us. Um, and a few years ago, their, their youngest child, their only son, was diagnosed with a really horrible form of cancer. And for, and for several years, he suffered and in 2020, he died from that cancer at the age of 13. And I got to tell you, they did not deserve that. That felt so unfair. Maybe you feel like Job, where you kind of look and say, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't know if the things that I've done in my life warrant that. Right? If you really look and we really look at the people's lives, it, the law of karma doesn't add up, does it? 
it doesn't, it doesn't always weigh out nice and equally like, well, yeah, you, bad things get equal bad treatment from God. It doesn't work out that way. So why then does God allow pain and suffering? Why does he ordain those things to happen? Well, Job, as the book progresses, he gets, he begins, that question begins to burn deeper and hotter within him. And at the beginning of the book, he doesn't, he chooses not to question God. He just kind of, you know, he's like, you know, no, God's God, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But then as he continues this argument with his friends, suddenly the question begins to burst out of him. And pretty soon the question turns into kind of an accusation. And I'll, I'll, I'll read to you what, what I mean. So this comes from, uh, this comes from chapter 23. So and Job, again, he's, he's kind of been talking for a while, and he goes, Job chapter 23, verse 2, the, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. I'm skipping over to uh, chapter 31. Oh, this is verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of every step I would present to him as, a, as to a ruler. Do you hear kind of what Job is saying? He's suddenly saying, he's like, he's, this is what he's saying. He's like, okay, if God ordains everything that happens, and he does. And God is perfectly just, which he is. What is happening to me is completely senseless. There's a glitch in the matrix. God has made a mistake, or God has like, he fell asleep, or something's off, and God owes me an explanation. This isn't fair. God owes me an answer. And he, lament, he says, like, you know, if I, God were here, I would go up to his face and say, God, you owe me an answer. And lo and behold, God shows up. God has answers, Job. Let's see what God has to say for himself. All right, here we go. This is from Job chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said... Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, and who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And it goes on. He goes on for a couple chapters there, describing the beauty, the complexity, and even the dangers of creation. What is God's argument? Job's accusation is, God, this doesn't make sense. You owe me an explanation. And God's response is, no, I don't. Why? Why not? Because God is God. 
He's infinite, eternal. He created everything that exists. He sustains all of creation. And Job, you are not God. You're finite. You're limited. Let me, let me put it to you like this. We establish God ordains everything, right? So that means throughout all of history, from the very first day to the very last day, every millisecond, everywhere throughout the universe, God is managing every proton, every neutron, every atom, every molecule, every cell, every living creature, every plant, every droplet of water, every planet, every moon, every asteroid, every sun, everywhere through our vast universe, all of the time, and he never stops doing that ever once, ever, even once. I don't know about you. I struggle to manage my family's weekly schedule, much less the universe. Here's the thing, guys. Do we really think that if God, if we were to say, God, why did you let this particular thing, this particular suffering happen in my life, that if God were to explain to you how that, that event fits into the vast network of cause and effect that he is constantly managing throughout the whole universe, that you and I could even begin to understand his answer, much less criticize it. We have neither the right nor the capacity to understand God's answer to why he does anything. So there's your answer. Why does God ordain pain and suffering in the universe? None of your business. We're not God. We don't have access to that information and we don't have a right to it because he's God and we're not. Are we all feeling? We feeling all right? We feeling good? We satisfied with that answer? I think if we went around the room and we were all kind of honest, we'd all go, no, I don't like that answer at all. In fact, I feel worse. Thanks a lot, Matt Creasy. This guy stinks, right? Well, can we be honest with each other, dear friends, this morning? The problem is not the answer. The problem is our question. You see, why is an informational question. And so it it asks for an informational response. And it is very common that when tragedy, when trauma, when terrible things happen to us, we feel the, 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 just the confusion of suffering. And so we start grasping for understanding. What, why did this happen? Tell me. Explain it all to me. This is why 24-hour news cycles got started, right? We just like, explain it all to me. I need to understand it. And no matter how much information we throw at the question, we never feel any better. Because the reality is that information does not have the power to soothe a hurting human heart. Only a relationship does. And so instead of being honest, instead of opening ourselves up to the confusion, we protect ourselves behind and be defensive and we ask informational questions. Why did this happen? Explain it to me. And friends, I'm going to be really honest with us this morning. When we ask that question, especially of God, it makes sense that we ask that question. And God is not upset at us that we're hurt and that we're confused and that we have questions. But underneath the question of why is one, an assumption that if, because I don't understand why this is happening, there must not be a good reason for it, which implies that God's stupid or doesn't know what he's doing. 
And it's also, it's sinful because it's a way to protect ourselves from asking the harder question, the deeper question, the one that will actually get us to the thing that we're really looking for, which is, God, do you care? If we're really honest with ourselves, the, the real question that's gnawing and just digging into our souls when sorrows filled our lives isn't why it's, God, do you care? But we never ask it because it's so vulnerable. And it puts us in a position of open hands, not having control. It invites the possibility that what if God says, I don't. And so we protect ourselves. But could we this morning, friends, be courageous and ask the real question? And if we were to ask that question, what would God say? Well, let's see what he says to Job, okay? So God corrects Job, right? And then Job, being the blameless and upright man, he repents. He says, uh, you know, I know you can do all things. This is Job 42. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, there, down to verse 5, my, or verse, yeah, verse 5. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I, you're God. I'm not. You're right. I'm sorry. And then God turns to Job's friends. He says, uh, uh, and he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So not only when does God talk to Job, which amazing, right? God talks to Job. He then vindicates Job to Job's friends and tells him, you guys put words in my mouth, and that is not okay. Then, as you'll, you, if you look at the very end of uh, the chapter 42, God restores everything Job lost twice over. And he's, Job is comforted by his family and his community. So God clearly loves Job, and he cares about him. But I'm not Job. <laughs> You're not Job. In fact, if I'm honest, guys, I tend to relate a little bit more to Eliphaz. Like, I, I'm, I tend to be the guy that... I. I start talking when I probably should just be quiet. Uh, how, does God care for me? Does God care for you? And how do we know? I think you guys probably see where I'm going with this. Friends, we have something way better than Job. Something far, far better. Because God sent, not just, he sent another man who was not just relatively righteous, but who was perfectly righteous. And a man who made a sacrifice for us, not with the blood of bulls and rams, but with his own precious blood. Friends, God cares for us so deeply that he sent his only begotten son to become one of us, to live the life that where he did not protect himself selfishly the way we do, but he opened himself up to all of the terror of God's wrath against sin and against the horrible sufferings and trauma of humankind. And he did it so that our disconnection from God could be reconnected. And he's made a promise that one day all of the suffering, 
all of the horrors and the trauma of, of human existence that we all go through throughout all of history will one day not just disappear, but somehow in God's cosmic scheme will work together for our good and our salvation. And, and we will enjoy an eternity in the life, in the existence that we were created for. Hallelujah. Friends, I don't know why God has allowed the particular pain and suffering that he's allowed to happen in your life. I don't have a good answer for it. And I don't want to be like Job's friends and try to put words in his mouth. Here's what I do know. It cannot be because he doesn't care. God has signed and sealed his profound love for you in the very blood of his son. And he invites us all this morning to let down the guard of our self-defenses, of our asking the question why, and instead come to him with our pain. And let him be the one to soothe it until the day that he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that there is nothing that we encounter in our lives, nothing, no trauma, no sadness, no sorrow, no pain that you did not see beforehand that doesn't somehow fit into your grand scheme and that will not one day be healed by the coming of the Lord Jesus on that last day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not a God who sits far off, that you do not you can't, that you somehow can't sympathize with us, but rather, Lord, you entered into our suffering and you took it on the cross. Thank you. Let that shape us. Let that transform who we are as a people, that we would not protect ourselves selfishly, but rather that we would open ourselves up to you and to others as you opened yourself up to us on the cross. We love you. Thank you that you loved us first. It's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen.